0: It is always a great pleasure when we can talk about the all-surpassingly important topic of education on The Morning Show, and I'm very excited for the next few minutes as we speak with Dr. Kathleen Corley, the author of a wonderful book called The Magical Place We Call School, Creating a Safe Space for Learning and Happiness in a Challenging World. Chicago-born Kathleen Corley has had a long career in education and I'm happy to say she began that career as an elementary music teacher and uh, eventually moved into administration and has been a a principal at a number of different schools, actually the founding principal at three different schools. And uh, she draws upon her many years of experience and insight uh, in writing this book in which she shares. many different thoughts about all kinds of different facets of public education and what it means to create a school, uh, in, which school in which students can feel uh, exceptionally safe and motivated, and respected, and, uh, and able to learn to their highest potential. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot to, uh, to learn from this uh, marvelously written book, and I'm so excited to be able to uh, speak with the author. The book is published by Forefront Books. Again, it's titled The Magical Place We Call School. And Dr. Kathleen Corley, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Sounds like my mom wrote it.
0: <laughs> we have a couple of things uh, in common, you and I. Uh, first of all, we're both products of the Midwest. We're both Chicago Cubs fans. I actually sang the national anthem for a Cubs game back in 2001. And, uh, oh,
1: that's my dream.
0: <laughs> and my wife uh, is uh, a retired uh, public education, uh, public school music teacher. And uh, I'm, uh, I I teach music at our local liberal arts college. So uh, education is a big, big part of my life, as is music. And so uh, I took your book in hand with just special delight and, and really, really enjoyed it. I should think one of the challenges is not finding things to write or having things to say, but having, in a sense, too much to say. I mean, when, when we're talking about a career, decades in public education, uh, how do you go about the task of kind of making sense of it all and figuring out what are the most important things that I want to say and how I want to say them?
1: I have to give credit to Glenn Plaskin on that score. The thing that kept me from writing uh, all those years, first it was, well, I don't have anything important to say, uh, because I was young then and I didn't know a whole lot. And then later when people would ask me, I would think, okay, I have all these stories and they make sense to me and I use them when I'm training assistant principals or uh, coaching teachers because they have a purpose. They end up having a purpose, but I, I don't know how to organize them. And the, the, or, the organization started to develop with a few tips from Glenn uh, and uh, it, it it became pretty much just what I wanted it to be, and I think it makes sense.
0: It really does. It's beautifully written, and there's, it's packed, and yet not in an overwhelming way. I mean, I really admire the way in which you have told kind of a sprawling and, and complicated story. I want to talk for a moment about the decision you made back in 1987 when at the time you were an elementary music teacher in Palatine, Illinois, And you made the leap. I mean, in some ways it's a natural step, but in other ways it's a leap from the classroom to becoming uh, a, I guess, assistant principal. You you say, I wanted to increase my sphere of influence beyond a single classroom. Tell us more about that particular hunger and what was sort of behind that.
1: There were, I think there was a turning point. Uh, music teachers, as you probably know, might end up teaching in multiple schools at the same time or it, you know, in the same year. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm at this school, and Tuesday, Thursday, I split between these other two. I was teaching at three schools at one time and then just two schools, which was infinitely better. A third better, anyway, um, so these, there's these three second-grade classes at what I would consider my second school, at a home school and then this other school. So at this other school, um, the second-grade teachers always, always walk with their students to the next class. So the, uh, the first two second-grade teachers, who I thought were great, they were older women, they were, they were fabulous people, and they cared very much about their children and they would walk their children to the classroom like anybody else, and then they would say to me, I need to know if there's a problem with anybody. Yes, I understand. There never was, almost never was. The third one, our introduction to each other was her in the vault looking up all of her students' records and keeping track of how many were single-parent families and how many were from poor families, and then complaining about that. That was my introduction to her. And so when she brought her children to class, not always, but a couple of times, she would stand at the end of the hallway and watch them walk to me. And the first time, now I'm a brand new teacher. I just fell off the turnip truck. So I turned my head, much like one of my dogs does when I'm confusing him, looking at her, making eye contact, like, why are you down there while your children are not, Behaving as they walk down the hall, and she knew what my look meant. I, I'm just quizzical. I haven't said anything. I'm not going to call her out on it. She says, "I'm making sure they can walk without me." No, you're not. You're just lazy. So I was thinking, okay, when they walk in my room, I play the Pink Panther song, doo 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 doo, and as soon as that happens, they know they're supposed to be quiet, go right to their seats, and then we're going to make a lot of noise. And then at the end, I'm going to play that song again. They'll sit up straight in their, in their seats, and they'll walk out. And one time, somebody, one of the children asked, why do we have to be quiet when that happens? I said, oh, because it's the Pink Panther song. Okay, he doesn't speak. It was the perfect song for the occasion. So I'm thinking, I can control every single thing in this room. I don't necessarily need to, but I can. I don't like the way that second-grade teacher does that thing. I wonder if I had a whole building, could I move her off of her notion of just barely phoning it in, or would I need to work to have her sell Mary Kay or something?
0: Instead? <laughs> well, it obviously was a move that has has proven to be a, a, a wonderful move for you. For as fine a music teacher as you were, you have certainly left your mark in a lot of great ways uh, as an administrator and we'll get into some of that in just a moment some of the interesting experiences you've had at one point you share a term that i've never seen before administrivia <laughs> in which you talk about how how a, a principal is someone who among other things ends up dealing with a whole lot of things that the typical teacher would not in any way be interested in dealing with and i, I wonder if you could just talk for a moment You don't spend a lot of time in your book talking about so-called administrivia, but surely that is a big part of the life and a big part of your responsibilities. To what extent is that a frustration for you? I mean, to what extent do you wish you could devote yourself wholly and solely to uh, the central matters of of public education?
1: It would be nice to have a, a clerk or someone do all of those things. But the principal really does need to do them. It's reports. It's uh, keeping up with uh, changes in um, in protocols for things. Uh, making sure we we meet deadlines on things. We have a, a very, I wouldn't call it intensive, but thorough uh, teacher evaluation program in in the state, and it has a lot of there are a lot of clicks involved. Oh, you'll you like this analogy. You know, in Baroque times, uh, musicians were paid by the note that they played <laughs> on some in some circumstances. So if if you're if I'm writing for you to play, you will slip me something so I write lots of flourishes and things so that you can so that you can make a little bit more money. And the tuba player or the equivalent of it is really not in a good place. He's not going to make as much money as everybody else because it's usually longer notes, right? I believe that whoever wrote this program that has very good content was paid by the click that we're supposed to make to get deeper and deeper and deeper into the program. So just, just putting the evaluations into the system requires clicking pretty deeply, like six to eight clicks every time you're going to do something, and you need to do it for a staff of 90. So um, <laughs> it, that's administrivia at its height, and I, and I want to see the paycheck of the guy who wrote the program for the <laughs> State Department of <laughs> Education, because uh, it takes me back to Baroque times.
0: <laughs> we're speaking with Dr. Kathleen Corley, and we're talking about her book, The Magical Place We Call School. Creating a Safe Space for Learning and Happiness in a Challenging World. In this book, uh, Dr. Corley shares all kinds of thoughts on what schools should be and need to be in order for uh, for, for students to uh, have as positive and beneficial an experience as possible. And uh, And, of course, that means, among other things, trying to address the emotional needs of each and every child uh, their emotional well-being, which of course is essential to any any person being able to learn and perform uh, to the to the height of their uh, ability, you spend a fair amount of time talking about a really remarkable public school up in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, the Saltonstall, but uh, kind of nicknamed the Salts. And you were its founding principal. And there there are three times in your career that you have been the founding principal of a given school. This is some of the most interesting stuff in the book. And I think a, a lot of us don't even stop to think about how every school has had a first or founding principal. And that first or founding principal uh, faces all kinds of extraordinary responsibilities beyond the, the principles who follow after. Just in a very brief nutshell, I'm afraid, just uh, give our listeners a sense of, of, of what we're talking about here, and and also why it was really important to you to tell this particular story of your career as thoroughly as you do.
1: The salt Stall salt was a unique opportunity once in a lifetime, maybe once in a decade at any place for anyone to experience there was a a gigantic grant that uh salem got and they paired with salem state university and um a local business but a a major business to to change schools in a, a significant way to do something important that would become a model for others and i remember attending the meetings later in Washington, D.C., where we were all supposed to report on what we did. Now, I wasn't there for the, for the beginning part. Teachers and uh, parents worked about 18 months and decided what they wanted in a school. So it's a teacher, mainly teacher-driven initiative. When I was reporting, people would stand up and say, we decided to have chess for every student starting in second grade. And we're really proud of it. And then they go on to say why they're proud of it. And um, they, they got less money than we did. But okay, go, oh, that, that's nice. And, and they were all kind of like that. And I, it was my turn. And I stood up and said, we had an old style building, 1914, with beautiful dental work in the, uh, in the auditorium that was rehabbed for $6 million. And then it became our home, and all the all of the programs there were initiated by the planning committee. They just hired me because I agreed with everything they said regarding the mission, and then we made it better. Room was pretty quiet because um, we we spent the money very well, and we built a new school basically. <laughs> One when you're starting from the very beginning and the teachers are in charge, you just can't miss.
0: Right, and 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 of course, part of what this school was predicated upon was trusting the teachers and what they know. I am so glad exactly. you share. Uh, I'm so glad you share one intriguing story about the whole matter of what your uh, what your title would be. And you tell us that you know that one of the more uncomfortable moments you had. Uh, as things were gearing up for the Stall to open was that there were quite a number of teachers that did not want a principal, or if there was a head administrator, that they not be called a principal. And uh, this had to be a really disconcerting moment. It clearly was from the way you, you describe it. Tell us a little more about what was going on there and how all that was ultimately resolved.
1: One of the teachers, her name is Betty Ray, Betty Ray um, doesn't see – she has a filter, but she doesn't see why it needs to be engaged. I guess that's a, a good way to put it. So Betty says what she's thinking. And Betty, by the way, when people say they were on the bridge in Selma in 1964, and if everybody who said that really was, the bridge wouldn't be there anymore because it would have collapsed under the weight. Betty was there, so that's who Betty is. Um, she's an activist is what I'm saying. So Betty said, you know, we were just, uh, it was offhanded the, the team is together. is like 12 of us. She says, you know, we didn't really want a principal. I mean, we didn't, we didn't think we needed a like head of school or anything. And I'm kind of taken aback. And the other people were almost as uncomfortable as I was because they're you know, like, Betty, Betty, take a break. Betty, stop. Um, uh, but no, she's, she's not going to do that. She said, but I mean, now that we have you, uh, we should have a different title for you. We should have, we should have some, something else. And I said, well, we can, we have plenty of time to figure that out. And I just sort of put it on a shelf. And then the next time it came up, I kind of poo-pooed it. And then the next time it came up, I thought, boy, they really want this thing. I said, okay, here's the test. If Whatever the title is, headmistress, whatever, if Joe Lunchbox is going to say, isn't that just like a principal? And then I'd have to say, why, yes. Yes, it is. Then he'd say, why don't you call yourself a principal? So it's like I'm being pretentious. And Betty's still not satisfied. Like, no, I I think it should be something else. And I said, okay, I insist. If it's going to be anything other than principal, I want Archangel. (laughs) And I... Did the pose with my arms, and they must have thought they had a loon for a principal or archangel or whatever. But we never talked about it again.
0: (laughs) By the way, and I
1: was called a principal.
0: Right. By the way, as you're telling that story, and I think it's at that moment or right around it in this process, you say at one point, there was silence again. My kind of silence. What do you mean by yes. my kind of silence?
1: I think they finally got it. I think I think they started to understand who I am and what they could count on me for. I hear you. I understand. It's like Japanese, yes. Yes, I hear you. Yes, I hear you. No, I'm not going to do that. I hear you. But this is not the most important thing we have to do. We needed to put together policies. We needed, we needed to get on the roster for the state of uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts. That is, you don't exist as a school until you have a school number, and then they start sending you reports so you can have some administrivia, administrivia to play with. Um, there was all of that to do, besides the big idea stuff and buying the furniture and outfitting things and encouraging people to come because it's a choice district. You have to market your school.
0: Right, and that was a big part of your job. And, by the way, you you share uh, a 10-page single-space position paper which kind of laid out the principles uh, by which this school was going to operate. I mean, that uh, by and large these teachers had put together, grouping the students in multi-age clusters, Uh, all of the, the younger students taking Suzuki violin Uh, all students taught a second language as part of the regular curriculum, and on and on, an absolutely fascinating list. You liken it to Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Um,
1: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) hang on there.
0: um, It's also, at one point, as you're describing all this, which is so interesting, and by the way, we should tell our listeners that the building, which is a, a beautiful old historic structure, ends up not being ready uh, for business that first fall, and you have to scramble around to find other places for the education to happen. I mean, this whole story in and of itself is so fascinating. I want to ask you about something that's, in a sense, rather trivial, and yet I find it really intriguing. When you're talking about one of the, your key colleagues in the planning stage for the Salton Stall, uh you call this particular person a formidable thought partner. A formidable thought partner. I just love that concept. I can't remember ever actually hearing that particular turn of phrase before, but I should think anybody who is in education, whether they're a teacher or an administrator, probably benefits greatly from having a formidable thought partner. What does a formidable thought partner mean to you?
1: Someone who is not going to accept necessarily what I have to say, Uh, at face value. I may think I have thought through it quite well, excuse me, and that person should be good at finding what I missed or challenging me on what it is that I have just said. Uh, I'm famous, not famous. I say on a regular basis, I see two or three people in the hallway and I say, I need to borrow your brains," which is exactly the same thing. And there's usually a sarcastic comment that goes along with it. Well, there's not much left of mine because uh, it's been a rough week, or something like that. I go, oh, I'm sure there's enough left for what we need to do. <laughs> I, I absolutely, positively need them, and I also want them to be a part of what I'm thinking of. There are things that are surprises. You know, we we do goofy things like um, pickle tasting for the for the uh, staff members, and that. 80 jars of pickles out there, and everybody stands outside my office and tries the pickles with crackers. And well that one's hot! I need something to drink. And they just have a great time with it, or a um, caramel apple bar, or a whatever. Those things are surprises. Those things, that's between the assistant principal and me, usually. But for other things, they need to be involved because they'll come back to me after I've asked them about some harebrained idea I have. They'll come back and go, you know, if you just changed the first part and you didn't invite everybody to the second part, I think you'd get what you want. Wouldn't that work? And I'd say, yes. Do you want a piece of this project? Do you want all of this project? And the person might smile and say, I was hoping you would say that because we're we're raising leaders. They're – there are a bunch of kids here as teachers, not all of them, but many of them are in their 20s, and they're awesome, but they don't lead stuff so much yet, but they'll have the confidence to do that if they lead smaller projects. It's not that I'm trying to get everybody to be an administrator. They may do something. They may be an assistant superintendent for curriculum. They may be a, a superintendent. Uh, I don't know. They should do whatever it is they want, but they should have the impetus to impetus to do things beyond their classroom walls, Hmm. because that's the fun part.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of fun, I wanted to say that uh, at one point uh, you say, I have always been a believer in the power of fun, and I think uh, some of what we've already talked about, uh, that's pretty clear, that you have a, a, a good sense of humor and appreciate fun and having fun and the value of fun but it's really intriguing to me as well that you are a principal who clearly believes that it's not just it's not just about fun uh it's about a lot of other really serious matters and that the way you use fun is within i i should say maybe a cer- a certain framework and a certain set of expectations of students and of teachers, and, and of everybody. And, and I, I really appreciate that. It seems to me that uh, a really good teacher, a really good administrator, a really good parent, a really good lot of things <laughs> has to do with how we use fun. And if fun is the only thing versus if fun is just one element uh, in what, how we're going about what we're doing.
1: I think you know me like an analyst. <laughs> I don't have one. We should talk later, maybe. Um, <laughs> yes, you are right. If if the classroom is all about fun and we're not getting things done because the class loses it after they've had the fun, like you can't get their attention back, that's the problem. So I'm the great construction cone mover. I protect time for learning. Uh, We don't do interruptions to the class day. You won't hear, you'll hear announcements in the morning. Right after you hear, our our mantra is respect, and it stands for responsibility, empathy, self-control, being positive, showing effort, cooperation, and being trustworthy. So instead of a bell in the morning, I mean, who needs that? Um, Aretha Franklin sings respect. Uh, just a bit of it, and that you should be in your seat and we should be ready to go. So after she does that, I do the announcements. And um, when I do the announcements, the last thing I say is ask good questions, make good decisions, leave things better than the way you found them, especially people's hearts, and please show respect. Well, if you do all those things, you're going to be a sort of buttoned-down uh, all about business kind of place. And you're just waiting kind of for the fun to happen. And the fun can happen if your, if classes are under control and, and children are decent to each other and they respect each other. We're a uniform school, we're a uniform district, but not everybody follows the uniform, um, procedures. Like, shirts are supposed to be tucked in, and if there are belt loops on whatever you're wearing on the bottom, you need to have a belt, except for kindergarten and first grade, because what cleanup aisle four for boys who don't plan well enough ahead <laughs> to undo the belt? Uh, so just, you just have to give them a little bit of grace there. So we, we do it the way it was written, because whatever you put in the handbook, you should be following. And if you don't want it in the handbook anymore, then take it out. Good example of that. It distracted things that will distract people. It used to be different color hair, like green or orange or pink or whatever. We had it in our policy, no no colored hair that's other than hair color. hair. It, it's not as awkward as I just said it, but... You, you get the, the idea. <laughs> well, it became sort of commonplace out in in the natural world out there, so I took it out of the handbook, because it's not a distraction now. If it's commonplace, and it's not hurting anybody, and it's not ugly or evil or amoral, then it's okay. I don't like it, necessarily, because I'm an old person, and I don't think people should be dying their kids' hair weird colors, but that has nothing to do with it. It is no longer a distraction. So why have it in there? We're not going to just not enforce it, because then people say, well, what else are you not enforcing? Well, we're enforcing everything that's in there. But we're progressive, and we can learn to walk upright.
0: Right. I think that blend of, in a sense, law and order and fun is is the ticket to great success. Uh, Not that it's easy to achieve that balance, but you know, clearly, you have managed to do that. Um, one of the abiding themes of your book, and of course central to what you are all about, is caring, of observing, of knowing your students well, and caring about who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And uh, at one point in the book, there's a list called Corleyisms, which are some of your sort of maybe the principles by which you do do what you do, and. Uh, a couple of them really leapt out at me that I thought were so beautiful. Students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And also, right. and
1: that's not that's not original from hmm. from me. Just just so you know, but it's <laughs> something that I say a lot.
0: Right, and and I I so appreciate that. And also, some students come to school to learn. Some come to be loved. Then they learn. And, of course, it's so poignant to think about somebody who maybe comes from a difficult place where school can be and needs to be the place where they experience love and security and safety. I mean, more so than in any other facet of their lives.
1: Yes. This should be the most beautiful, lovely, comforting place that they can possibly imagine outside of their home and in some cases it definitely replaces their home when it comes to the safety part because there are things they will tell us that they will not tell a parent or they've told a parent and nothing happened to rectify the situation so then we gently talk to the parent about what the problem is and go from there.
0: Hmm. A last quick question. You described towards the very beginning of the book kind of the opening of the typical school day and especially the first day of school uh, where you are a principal now. And one of the things you described there, I think you call it call to the post at 7.15 a.m. Explain to our listeners what you are doing at 7.15 a.m.
1: At about seven o'clock the cars start to line up. The ones who really have to get out of here and get to work. And call to the post is the first bell. That's the one that goes <Scorpio> <Weiston> <clears throat> <my baby> <words>. that. da 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 and that's trumpet, uh recorded on uh on the intercom, that's the okay. Open your your car doors because we are now on duty. You can't drop your kids off when we we can't supervise them. Although people try to do it on the regular, um, have to call them and go, hey, no, we can't do this. We can't we can't pay people before 7:15. It's just not going to work. So they start coming into the building and they go to a variety of places. They may go outside to play. They they may be going to a club that happens. Uh, My club happens on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the morning, and it's a drum and dance team. The dance teacher takes care of the dancers, and I take care of the drummers. And so we play drums uh, for the first 20 minutes um, or 30 minutes before school starts. Um, Then they get breakfast if they've gone to a club, and then it's off to the classroom. And if somebody's late, the social worker goes outside to say, hey, why are you late? Because they have to sign the card to say why they're late. And after a while, um, when she gets tired of talking to the same people, then I go outside and say, how can we help you get to school on time? Well, I don't, even, I don't understand why you're, you make such a big deal out of it because it's, you know, it's just my kid. Actually, it's not, as a matter of fact. It is the entire class because the teacher's finally rolling and she's got everybody's attention. And then Thomas walks in and every head turns to Thomas. And they might even say hello to him, which is a good thing. But Thomas is going, yeah, I'm late again, in his head, because I don't think he enjoys it. But you've just interrupted the teacher and about, oh, 18 to 20 students. How, how can that be cool? How can that be okay? Help me with this. Help me help, me help you change this problem.
0: Hmm. Well, working together, of course, is a... Hallmark of all that you have done through your long career, and your mentor uh, named Al, who worked with you as you first became an administrator. One of his uh, guiding uh, guiding uh, axioms is: be firm, but not rigid. And it seems to me that you have lived that out in all kinds of exciting ways in your career as both a teacher and an administrator, and now sharing so many insights in your wonderful new book, The Magical Place We Call School, Creating a Safe Space for Learning and Happiness in a Challenging World, published by Forefront Books, one of the best books about education I think I have ever read. The author, Dr. Kathleen Corley. Dr. Corley, thank you so much for being my morning show guest, and thank you for all the good that you are doing in the world on behalf of students and teachers alike, and thanks again for this conversation.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, and by the way, my ringtone is Law & Order theme.
0: (laughs) Very good. Thanks again.
1: Thank you.